Thank you very much. I want you to feel free to just continue eating. It doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, they, they were concerned that the noise would bother me. I told them for 10 years I did prison ministry. Every week, stand on the back of a flatbed truck in a maximum security prison yard. And so I'm, I'm used to distractions, and I'll just, I'll just keep talking and just, just hope that one or two are listening. So I, I am going to go over the, the carbon, green carbon nanotechnologies for the energy sector and then talk about living out scriptural truths in the academy. This is a slide that actually comes from a magazine, Design magazine in Germany. But they took a picture of our nano car versus the largest caterpillar, the largest vehicle made. <clears throat> and you can see the, the weight here is 280,000 kilograms. This is 9.4 times 10 to the minus 24 kilograms. So for those of you that deal on the financial side, 10 to the minus 24 is a 0. Point, and then you've got 24 zeros, and, uh, and, that, then, you're, and then, and then uh, your number, or 23 zeros, and then you'll have 9, 4. So it's a, it's a very, very small number, but that's the weight of the nanocar. So many people say, and, and this is about as good a picture of a nanocar as you're going to get. There's the four wheels, the rest you can't see, and there's a reason for that. That's because of the imaging technique that doesn't, doesn't pick up the internal structure, but you'll see it in, in just the next slide. But many people ask, why do we want to work on nanocars and what made us do this? And even though I explain this, as soon as I'm done, somebody asks the question, well, why do you want to do this? And so I think that, that whenever I explain this, I never really get it quite across, but I'll try. The reason we want to make small vehicles is the very same reason why we have enzymes in our body. So in other words, the enzymes will take the food that you're eating now, They'll break it down and make it a part of your body by tomorrow, even by this afternoon, later on this afternoon, parts of your body. It will build structure from the food that you eat. That is building from the bottom up. Generally, people build from the top down. So if we want to build a, a, a podium like this, we go out, we find a big tree, we cut it down, we build our podium. That's top-down construction. That's how people generally build things. But in nature, everything is constructed from the bottom up. And... The way this is done is generally through enzymatic interaction. And so you'll have certain cells, portions of cells formed through thermodynamic interactions, just molecules liking to be next to other molecules. But you have to have enzymes do the key construction to give you non-regular patterns. And we are non-regular patterned entities. And so what we want to be able to do is do this ex vivo outside the body, outside a biological organism. Can we take small pieces and bring them in and build up structure. Now, for example, in this building, you look at the technology here, and you look at the building and the structure. Could it be that in a hundred years, we wouldn't be building buildings by bringing in bricks and sticks and mortar, like we've been doing for the last 5,000 years, but we would bring in small entities like nanocars, and just bring in raw materials like, like uh, piles of carbon, piles of, uh, 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 and then and cylinders of oxygen, and allow them to assemble so that in a hundred years this building would just spontaneously assemble by pre-programmed vehicles and vehicles that would be programmed by electrical fields, for example. Now that sounds really nonsensical. However, that's exactly like how you and I have been made. We have been made from the bottom up through molecular interactions that have been assembled through middle nanomachines called enzymes, but ex vivo, outside a living organism, 
We have to have structures that are non-enzymatic-like because enzymes don't work well in non-biological environments. So this slide shows you what the actual nanocar looks like in a, in a carbon framework. It has Buckminster fullerene wheels. It has four fully, fully independently rotating axles with free rotation. It also has this axle versus the chassis can spin 360 degrees on both sides. And the top and bottom are exactly the same. Now, why were those features built in? They were built in so that when we put the cars on the surface, it doesn't matter how they land. This way or this way is both the same. My sons, when they were growing up, had these cars that where, where the axle could spin 360 degrees relative to the chassis. They would have these little electric cars. And that allowed these vehicles to climb up steps. That allowed these vehicles to have much more mobility, so we built that in. And this is how we do it. We start, start with a compound called orthobromoanilin, and we go through a series of synthetic steps, and we build these up in flasks. We build these up so that we build 10 to the 23rd at a time. So remember, Avogadro's number is 6 times 10 to the 23rd. That's the number of molecules in one mole. How many people remember that? All right. So the number of molecules in one mole, which is about 18 milliliters of water, which is one swallow of water. You take one swallow of water or iced tea, it doesn't matter. You're getting about 6 times 10 to the 23rd molecules of water. Well, how many molecules, how big a number really is that? Well, if you have 500 sheets of paper you put in your inkjet printer, it's about 2.5 inches tall. If instead of having 500 sheets of paper you had 6 times 10 to the 23rd sheets of paper, which is the number of molecules of water that you have in that one swallow of water. So if we had 623 sheets of paper, that stack of paper would reach from the Earth to the Sun 400 million times. So you'd have 400 million stacks of paper from the Earth to the Sun if you had a mole of paper. 610 to the 23rd uh, sheets of paper. That's how large a mole is. That's how small a molecule is. So we build these moles at a time so we make in one reaction more cars than there have been made by all auto manufacturers in all the history of car making. So this is some pictures then of the nano cars again. And what we're going to do is we're going we're to see these nano cars move out across this surface. So these are nano cars on a surface of gold. This is a, 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 a surface of gold. These islands are one atomic step up on the gold. So you'll have little gold islands on top of gold. That's what this is. But it's atomically smooth gold. And we'll follow this car as it moves across. So this car here is going to move across. So it turns and it starts moving in this direction. You see it. And then finally it has this first nano collision recorded. This is the moving of a nano car. It moves across, across the surface directionally, meaning it moves forward or back. It doesn't move sideways. Many people have, have said that Something like this couldn't be done. In fact, a colleague of mine at Yale University had told me when he heard we were first working on nanocars, he said, I think you should let that, quiet, that, that project quietly slip away. I said, why? He said, well, you'd be violating at least one law of thermodynamics. Now, there's only three laws of thermodynamics. And so I said to him, if I'm violating, what's the one I'm violating? What's the other one that I might be violating because I'm violating at least one? And he had no good answer for me. The easiest thing in science... The easiest thing to do is give five reasons why something won't work. That's the easiest thing to do. But if you're not violating a law of thermodynamics, it's certainly worth a try. And these things do move directionally. 
so that they move forward and back directionally. If we, we made the three-wheel version, again, that only pivots on axis. Many people said, oh, these are just sliding. Well, if they were sliding, you would expect this to translate as well. It doesn't. These are, move only on axis, and these move forward and back. And here's a, a series of pictures where you can see one atomic step gold island. Here's a car has come up on it because we built in this suspension, this ability for the axles to pivot relative to the chassis and then comes down the other side and another one comes up. So it's going up these one atomic steps because of the chassis as, we, as we've constructed it with this suspension. We can also use electric field. So we can apply electric field here and an electric field gradient and the car will move following the electric field. If we put the electric field to the side, it doesn't move. It can only move forward and back, just like cars move. So eventually what we want to be able to do is move masses of cars just by using DC fields. So we'll move the field in one direction, all the cars will move in one direction. Change the field, they all move back. So you could have masses of cars moving. And remember, we don't want just one car moving, we want masses of them. You say, can you really construct that way? What, if the, what kind of system can, how, how many entities can a car carry? Well, a car could carry a small molecule or, or an atom. You say, well, can, we really, can we really build that way? Well, human beings survive using hemoglobin. This is what God has put within us. So within, within our, our blood is something called hemoglobin. Each heme has an atom of iron in the middle. That atom of iron binds one mole of oxygen. One, one, I'm sorry, one atom of oxygen. So the iron atom binds one atom of oxygen, and that's all it binds. So how can we survive? Because what happens is the hemoglobin picks up oxygen in the lungs, transports it to a toe, one of our toes where a cell is crying out for oxygen, drops off the oxygen, then picks up CO2, and that iron atom carries the CO2 back out to the lungs. So it learned about carrying things in both directions. So you fill the cargo truck in New York, you send it to L.A., you empty it, you fill it up with something else before you bring it back to New York. This duality of, of carrying cargo has been long, known for a long time. But <clears throat> we can survive because we have 10 to the 23rd hemes carrying oxygen. Even though each heme only carries one molecule of oxygen, if you have enough hemes carrying oxygen, you can do that rather well. That's the idea, that we would have moles, 10 to the 23rd batches of nanocars. It's like having one fire ant doesn't cause much trouble, but 100,000 of them build a, mole, a, a mound on, on your front lawn overnight. That's what happens when you have multiplicity of entities working for you. Here we would have not just 100,000, we'd have 10 to the 23rd, which is uh, about 10 billion billion. It's a big number. We recently made the Nano Dragster, has large back wheels, small front wheels, and in fact, what it does is really quite interesting. It actually pops wheelies. These front wheels actually flip back on over to the other side. It can even flip right back over to the other side, and this is because the front wheels have lower adhesion energy to the gold surface. We've built polymer-powered nanocars, cars that could blow polymer out the back end and then move them along because we have to think of other power sources. And we've shown now that when we put a catalyst on the end of the nanocar, we can have these cars be pushing out as they polymerize a substrate that's within the atmosphere. Many people said you don't have a car until you have a motor. And, and I understand what they're saying. I'm not sure that they're quite right, but nevertheless, we built one with a motor. 
because these hemoglobins that are carrying oxygen in our body do not have their own power source. They are pushed around by a much larger power source, namely the heart. The heart pushes these things around because when you get to the truly nano size, you don't see too many things at this dimension having a power source. Just to give you an idea, these molecules, each nanocar is like, would be an hors d'oeuvre to, to a white blood cell. They are billions and billions of times smaller than a white blood cell. They are very, very small. But if we could build them to have their own motor, it would be very interesting if we could put a molecule like this. This particular molecule, when light hits it, it only rotates unidirectionally in one direction. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is there's two stereogenic elements. There's atrope isomerism about that double bond, and there's another stereogenic center there. So what happens is when it gets excited, there's two energy pathways it can go down, but it keeps going over the lower energy pathway. That's what keeps it going in one direction. And it, you just shine a light on it, and it does this. So the idea was, could we build this into a nanocar such that as it turns, it would be like a paddle wheel pushing it across the surface and moving it. And so we were able to do that. So here's a, the motorized nanocar, and here's a picture of the motorized nanocar. And you actually see one corner of the nanocar showing a brighter globe, and that's because of the motor hangs over one side. We certainly could have built the motor in line with one of the axles, but, but uh, uh, the, the synthesis would have been more complex. The problem with that motor is it only rot rotates 1.8 revolutions per hour. It's a slow motor. But we've solved that now. We've got motors now that, that will spin three or four and a half megahertz. So that's three million rotations per second. It's much faster than any macroscopic motor could ever be built. Anything that, that would be built macroscopically running that fast would fly apart. But at the nano level, since we're dealing with quantum effects, these stay, stay intact just fine. And here's the synthesis. And this motor then spins at, at uh, three million rotations per second when you shine a light on it. We've also extended this now into what we're calling nanosubmarines. We haven't even published on this yet. This is, a, this is the motor. It's built off the same motor, so it, so it has uh, this 3 million rotation per second. Here's the hull of the submarine. And we put fluorescent units here. And the, the beauty of the fluorescent units are so that we can track this in solution. Now, it's interesting. I find something fascinating about these nanosubmarines. And, and uh, it's just unfortunate that now that there's a greater age separation between myself and my students, they didn't appreciate this much. But the solution that holds these nanosubmarines, the nanosubmarines in solution are yellow, which I found to be fascinating. But the college students just don't get it. Okay, let me switch to green carbon, this bridge to sustainable energy. There, there's, there's something God-given in a hydrocarbon where you can pack hydrogen around carbon atoms so densely and it is stable for millions and billions of years just like that. But you put a spark there and all of that comes off and forms CO2 and water with, it, with, with a tremendous exotherm. That is amazing to be able to store hydrogen that way. Can we move to sustainable energies through green carbon, and green carbon is having this focus on doing things more efficiently and in a more environmentally benign fashion. So extraction and processes that minimize carbon release throughout the cycle 
all the way through to carbon sequestration throughout the entire process, CO2 sequestration. Can we do this with nanotechnology? And that's this idea that we're pushing of green carbon, to use it as the bridge to sustainable energies and use it also in, in, a, in an environmentally benign sense. One of the materials that we're working with in this area is called graphene. Graphene are these sheets that come off when you write with a pencil. Pencil is made out of graphite. These individual sheets slide off. These were first picked up as individual sheets just in 2004. It was believed before that that you couldn't get a freestanding sheet of only one atom thick, that it would not be stable. It turns out it is stable. And probably one of the reasons it's stable is because it's not really 2D. It has ripples in it, which brings it up into a pseudo-3D. Nevertheless, it's a stable entity, very, very strong. And we can make this in bulk now from bulk graphite. And one of the projects we're working on is this nano-drilling fluids. And this is supported now by M.I. Swaco, who's been a tremendous partner uh, uh, with rice here in town. So we can make these graphene oxide sheets that are water-soluble. We can make these either water-soluble or oil-soluble. And the idea is that if we send it down with the drilling fluid, these will form a natural, uh, a, a natural filter cake on the edges of, uh, all along the edges of the bore here, all along the, the sides of the bore, to protect the fracture, to, uh, to protect the formation. So that when the pressure is high, it's just like having a filter agent. These are only one atom thick and extremely strong. And then the idea is that when we release the pressure and start wanting to yield the oil, the oil would just push these out from the other side to keep the drilling fluids from, in, from penetrating into the pristine fracture. We're also using this, of course, in shale oil, in shale, to prevent the infiltration of the drilling fluids into shale. And uh, so these are the, the projects we're showing. Very simple tests we did in the beginning to get M.I. Swaco to sign on. So they've been, been actually very gracious partners. <clears throat> we were also working on, on, on a more complex project within nanotechnology for, for oil drilling, for oil field use. So the, the, the nano drilling fluids is a very simple concept. And within any portfolio, we would want things that can easily be administered and some things that are harder to administer. This is much harder. And this is nanoreporters. So this is our group at Rice is working on this. And then this is supported by 10 different companies as part of this Advanced Energy Consortium. And many of you work for, for these companies here. Uh, and so the idea is with these nanoreporters, can we have something that's like a tracer that we pump down hull? But the problem with the tracer, you know where you pumped it in, you know where you got it out, so you know this is where I pumped it in, this is where I got it out, that's all I know. That's like having a spy. You send them in on the west coast of Afghanistan, and they come out on the east coast. But you can't ask them anything that they saw there. All you know is they went in here, they came out here. Wouldn't it be nice if you could begin to interrogate them and say, okay, what did you see? Even if you can't get real-time assessment, in other words, you can't get information from them while they're in Afghanistan, if you can only get information when they come out, that's still much better than having no information at all. So what we've developed are nanoreporters, things that we can pump downhole that tell us about the downhole environment of what they saw. And here's the idea, that we would have these, what we're calling nanoreporters, where a nanoreporter is really a nanoparticle where we put 
tendons on it that make it water-soluble, and we adsorb to it small molecules that would be the signaling molecules. And these signaling molecules will come off, we program them to come off when they see oil. And when I say program them, they are not water-soluble. So they only come off when they see oil. And then we will interrogate the nanoparticle when it comes back up and we'll see how many signaling entities it has left. Some of these entities will come off when they see oil. We'll have others that change structure when they see hydrogen sulfide. We can also molecularly barcode these structures. We can put little groups here that would tag these individually so that we'll know we sent out this nanoreporter was pumped down on month number one. These nanoreporters were pumped down at month number six, for example, so that when they come up, we interrogate them and we say, when were you sent down? And immediately we would know by spectroscopy in real time when we sent them down and how much oil they saw, how much hydrogen sulfide they saw, what was the extreme temperature they saw, what was the extreme pressure they saw. And so the idea is that we would have an injection hole with these nanoreporters which have these signaling molecules. They go down hole. When they see the oil, they start dropping off some of their signaling molecules. And then when they come back up, we assess how much oil they saw by the number of signaling molecules that they dropped off. And this can be assessed very quickly by fluorescence, for example, which you can do even single molecule fluorescence. So the sensitivity is there. So in the first test, we had to make what we called hydrophilic carbon clusters, and then we coated these with polyethylene glycol, polyvinyl alcohol, and now we can do it just with oxidized carbon black, which is used throughout the industry. 50% of the weight of your rubber tire is carbon black, for example. Very cheap material. We can oxidize it. We stick on groups, polyvinyl alcohol, very, very uh, uh, monodispersed systems. They're running about, uh, they're under 100 nanometers in diameter. And in the laboratory, we put these through columns just to see how they progress. And we also use core samples. We've used Berea stone from Ohio. We've used uh, a dolomite core that came from the Kuwait oil field. And we actually put these through these cores, and we look at the progression. Can they indeed carry molecules through? Very difficult to have organic molecules passing through Earth. This is why we have Superfund sites, because it's very hard to get the organic matter out of those sites. But what we've been able to do is to show that these will run very quickly. Just in a couple of poor volumes, we get 80% of the material coming through. And they'll carry it through. And we tag these. In this case, in the laboratory, we're just using a, a PCB molecule, which is radio tagged. So we have radioactive tracer. And it carries the PCB with it. We can do this in calcite or sandstone. And, and just... Uh, Going back over here, let me just say that we've used both, both rock that has positive charge and negative charge, and it works well in both. And if we have oil-free sandstone, it carries it all through, but if we have oil in the sandstone, you see it drops some of the cargo off, so that when it comes out, it's dropped off some of the cargo, so we know it's seen oil. We've done this, and the PCB without the nanoreporter comes through very little or not at all, depending in, in what's there. So we have these carriers that can carry these through for us. So there's a lot of future work to be done with this. It's in the early stages, but we need to replace the radioactive tracers with, with environmentally friendly molecules. So we just use fluorophores, fluorescently tagged. We, we have column experiments going at higher temperature. We're doing this also in collaboration with Shell, which is just down the road from, uh, from, from Rice there on, on Bel Air Boulevard. Uh, we have... <clears throat> going toward core flood flooding experiments and 
more comprehensive mathematical modeling because if we send one, down, one type down on week one and it's seen very little oil, we send another type down on week two and it's taken much longer to come out, but it's seen oil, we begin to get a topology underground of how far out this went to see the oil so you get an idea of how much residual oil there is underground. So that's, that's our, our, our overview of nanotechnology and as, as it's applying from, from our group into the oil field. Let me talk to you now, shift, shift gears and talk to you about this other phase of my life <clears throat> and what has happened to my life because of one particular activity and that's because of meditation on Scripture. Let me read you a verse from the Bible. It says in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. There is a promise here. Let me show you what this promise says. Now, my background, I'm what's called a Messianic Jew, which means that I was born and raised a Jew and I believe Jesus is the Messiah. That he's died on the cross and he is the Messiah. So, no matter what your background, I think I overlap a little bit in some way. But look at what this says. It says that if we meditate day and night on the law of the Lord, there's going to be tremendous prosperity so that even when others are withering, we will prosper. Now, let me tell you something about prosperity. Scriptural prosperity is not money. It could be, but it is not what is defining as money. It is a quality of life and a way of life and a relationship that goes much, much deeper than money could ever buy. And it has effects in a relationship between a man and his wife. And it has a relationship between parents and children that is valued above all else. There's another verse in Joshua 1.8. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. So look at the promise here. Again, very specific. If you will meditate on this day and night, you will have success. It never has any guarantee for meditation once a week. There's no guaranteed promise. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. But there's a guaranteed promise here. There's another verse, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Look what it says. It says that if I will meditate on this day and night... I'm going to have more wisdom than all my enemies, and I'll have more insight than all my teachers. That's the promise. And it doesn't say just Bible teachers. It says than all your teachers. That's the promise. And to this day, I have been doing this now for over 30 years. I have a pocket full of Scripture verses that I'm meditating on. Driving down the road, I'll be reciting these things, and I allow this Word to take place. Let me show you some examples of how this has worked in my life. Students in the home. You know, when, when I was in graduate school, got married in graduate school, my wife and I would invite students over to our home for these evening gatherings. And, and we would feed them a meal, and uh, then we'd have a Bible study with them. 
And I remember watching them during the meals, this, this food falling all over. College students are not, they don't mean to be messy, it's just inherent within them. And I used to see food falling off their plates and they didn't even know it. Remember once a guy walked in, he didn't even wipe his feet, it had been snowing outside. He walked in and his boots were tracking snow on the ground. By that time we had a two-year-old daughter, one-year-old daughter, and she was crawling. And I remember her, her picking up snow from the ground where it came off this guy's boots and eating it. And it started to really bother me. And I thought, you know, this our little apartment's going to be trashed. And I read the scriptures from beginning and end, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. When I'm done, I start again. I've been doing this for over 30 years. And I, and I know that God speaks to me through the scriptures wherever I'm at. And that day, that it was, I was just praying to God about this. It bothered me so much. I read this one verse. It says, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. And I just felt God speaking to my heart through this verse. You want to keep your sticking little apartment clean? Don't invite them in. But if you want to see the strength come into these young people, you invite them in. I'll take care of your home. Since that day, we have never stopped. To this day, every Sunday, lunch in our home is open to college students. And we'll have, on average, 40 college students come in for lunch every Sunday. I've always told my kids, our home is here to be used for the Lord's work. And God will bless our homes. And we have, we have a maid come on Monday to clean up after these folks. But um, uh, we still do it. September 3, 1993, I was invited back to Purdue University. That's where I had gotten my Ph.D. I was invited back. I had recently gotten tenure. And I was invited back to give a lecture. And I knew that I would have to speak in front of my, my Ph.D. mentor. And he was a Japanese man. And it was very hard to please him. I remember when I was a student in his lab, no matter what result I ever brought to him, even if I thought it was a tremendous result, he would say to me, pretty good, for your level. And I never got above the man's waist. Never above his waist. And... And, uh, and so I was, I was a bit concerned when I was going to go back to speak about my own results now. And I was praying that morning, as I do before any lecture I give, whether it's to be a Bible study, whether it's to be an organic chemistry lecture, I pray that God would pour something out through me. And I was praying that morning that God would really hit them with the power of God. Something dramatic would happen. And I read this verse, and it said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. So I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith through this. I pray that my professor, when he sees this talk, would say that it was a super seminar. That he would say super. And I didn't, you know, he never used that word in particular. I just wanted to see what was going to happen. That he said, that he would say it was super. And I said, Lord, I pray it's the best seminar ever in that department. And that... I would never know if it was really the best unless he says it was super. Then I'll take that as a sign from you that it was the best seminar ever. Well, I got done giving the lecture and this Japanese man was sitting on the front row like he always does. As soon as I got done, he stood up, he raised his hand and he said, Super! Super! <laughs> there was a Nobel Prize winner sitting in the second row, H.C. Brown, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1986. And he was sitting on, on, on the end row, and I walked up to him and I said, thank you so much for coming to the lecture today. 
And he shook my hand and he held on to my hand. He's sitting there and he's holding on to my hand. He says, I want you to know something. That was the best lecture I've ever seen in my entire life. Now, the man was in his 80s. And I said, that's very kind of you to say it. And in typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind. I really mean it. (laughs) So there was a confirmation. I was once upset with a colleague. This was a colleague we had hired at the university. This was before I had come to Rice. So at another university. And this colleague started a year after I did. And he walked into my office and he one day said to me, I'm going to get tenure before you ever ever do. Now, that's not something you generally say. That's like walking up to somebody and saying, I'm better looking than you are. Even if it's true, to say such a thing is a very ugly comment. And yeah, he was a stud when it came to chemistry. But I had been there a year longer. But why would you say something like that? Well, anyway, God blessed my career so much. And, it, and within three years, I had tenure. And I went from having a little metal student desk and a concrete floor to having carpeting and a big wooden desk and a secretary in front and everything. And after five years, he still had the little metal desk and no secretary. And one day, a student came in and she said, you know, I really like you, but this professor across the hall is always saying bad stuff about you. And I was like, why tell an undergrad this? The worst thing you can do is tell something to an undergrad if you've got a problem with somebody, because then it's like fire. It's just in the next day, it's in the school newspaper. And, and so I went and I knocked on his door. You know, I was really upset. I was going to give him a piece of my mind. And he wasn't in. And then God reminded me of, of a scripture that I had just been meditating with, upon with my children. But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. So I started to pray for this young man every day. I would break at noontime, something that I've done for over 30 years. I'd break at noontime, I'd go to the chapel on campus, fall on my knees and pray. And I would make him a point of prayer every day. Every day I would pray that God would bless his work because he wasn't getting grant money in, his group wasn't growing. I prayed God would bless him, bless him. After about a year of this, he was blessed so much. He got a big NIH grant. His group was doing so well. Another six months, he was doing so well. And I never told him a word of this. He did so well, he got an offer from another university. He took the offer and he left. And I was delighted. (laughs) You know, God, a lot of times we have problems with people. And God would love to see that problem dealt with, but there's all this junk in our own hearts that has to be dealt with first. And by my praying for him, I learned to really love the man. This is the way the scriptures speak to me and speak to specific situations in my life as I meditate upon it. Here's the take-home message. This is what I want you to take home. Moses, when he was finishing... He had, for 40 years, he wandered in the wilderness with these Jews. What's he going to say after 40 years? PhD is four years. You've got 10 PhD time periods here. Four years. What's the thing you summarize with? This is what he said. When Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. He says, this word is your life. If you take this book and take it to heart, you're going to possess everything that was there for you to possess. I don't want to leave anything on the table when I get to heaven. I want all that God has for me. He says, you can have it. If you take this book seriously, it is not an idle word for you. This is 
an amazing book. I've read many, many books, but nothing like this. How many of you have children? Okay, I have four children. Look at this promise. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. This is the guarantee. If you take this on, if you take this on and you love, if you delight in the commandments of God, if you delight yourself in the word of God, it's not for your own sake. Do it for your children. Like I said, I did prison ministry for 10 years. Whenever I could never get through to a man, I would say, do you have children that I can pray for? Immediately they would stop and they'd give me their attention. They'd say, yeah, everybody wants the best for their children. This is a promise. I get done with my prayer time in the morning. I have my four children's pictures on the wall. I say, Lord, I remember your promise to me that you would make them mighty on this earth. Do this, I pray, in their lives. Take this for your children. Don't trash your family in the process of all of this. The family can be a tremendous blessing. This is an article I wrote in the Journal of Organic Chemistry. It was a, you know, I'd won something. They asked me to write the, you know, some synopsis of, of, of my, my time as a professor. This is quoting from that article. I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member. And most of those were single PIs since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. I was showing that you've got to work hard. But look at how much my family carried me through this. On days of receiving declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. But I, always, I would always call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth. And my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. We all go through things in work and in building careers. The family can be a treasure. If you work with your family in the right way, they can be the greatest support to you. I have a, a portion on my website. Here's my website, jmtour.com. You can just Google Jim Tour. It'll come up. Under the personal topics section and under audio files, you'll find a section called scriptural sexual ethics. This is a six-part series I did for college students, but has been tremendous help for many, many couples. Because I know <clears throat> that when you hear a talk like this, sometimes you're wondering, well, you know, that's easy for him. He's got a great wife and a great family, you know, but I, mine isn't quite there, and I'm not quite there. And I want you to know, brothers, I'm no amazing person. I've gone through struggles just like you've gone through struggles. The same things you struggle with, I struggle with. The same pains you have, I have. So I did this series. It starts out, Introduction to Scriptural Sexual Ethics. It talks about the basis of the Word of God, but I also bring in a lot of writing from C.S. Lewis and other absolutely amazing scholars. The, first, the, the next part is called Redemption is Not a Sham. It's Victory Over Lust. If you struggle with lust, I have been there. There is victory. Some men think, that's all I have. I, don't, I, I wouldn't know what life is without it. I guarantee you there is victory over this. And I give you the prescription for it, you follow it, you will be free. You will be free to love as God has you love. And this goes for women as well. The true meaning of manhood. You know, I used to teach a Bible study to the Houston Astros. It was the year, in fact, that they won the pennant. And it was the year that they stopped the Bible study when the World Series began because they were too busy with other things. I'm not saying that there's a correlation, but it is, an, it is interesting nonetheless. <clears throat> The true meaning of manhood. I, I once said to them, how many of you guys in here feel like you're real men? 
Not a single man raised their hand. And I said, I know what you mean. My son puts, I told him, your pictures on his wall because he thinks you embody manhood. But all of you know you fall short. I talk about what the true meaning of manhood is and how this was imaged for us in Jesus Christ. Behold the man. I talk about the true meaning of womanhood. And woman, God's masterpiece. The absolute beauty of God in making woman. What a fascinating creation. And how men find women mysterious. And how men, how women will often lower themselves to something that they know is not right to please a man. When in the end, it's not going to please the man. And we talk about this. Converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? You talk about struggles that most young couples have. Not just young couples. Couples 10 years married. What's one of the biggest struggles? Struggles. The bedroom is hell on earth. I will talk about how you can convert that to heaven on earth. And I have been there and I have done that. And people that pick this up and walk in it have tremendous success. And marriage is not a sham. Lowering the divorce rate from the current 52% to the extraordinary, extraordinary number of less than 1%. This works for Christian, non-Christian, anybody. Anybody. This has been statistically shown over and over again. That couples that live in this way, that do this particular thing, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. It's not scripture med- meditation. Works whether you're Christian or not. Has less than 1% divorce rate. And whether you say it's causal, it's effective, causal or an effect, doesn't matter. You have to pay homage to the statistics. They are there. What you do is you go on that website and you listen to it. Women, you listen to this. And start at one. I know there's nonlinear learners these days. They click all around. This is one through six. You listen in this way. You start at one, then two, then two. And go through it or else six will have no impact because you won't know what I'm talking about. It's three and a half hours in total. Each, each thing is, is like a half hour or something like that. Then take it with the one you love and listen to it with them. We use as our family devotion, we use something called Hurlbut Story of the Bible. And I put it here in case you want it. That's the resource we used because I could read that to infants. We had family devotions every morning at 5.30. We still do. I leave, I leave my house at 6. I don't get home till 6 at dinner. So I'm gone 12 hours. But I start with family devotions. I only have one child left at home out of the four. But every one of them, from the time they were in the crib, we took them out and we did family devotions. Hurlbut's story of the Bible tracks with the Bible from beginning to end. It's a great resource. You want to get the original edition, yesterday's classic. It's 660 pages. It's a long thing, but you can get it for Amazon and paperback, like $25. This is our research group. These are The, the nanocars were supported by the National Science Foundation, nano drilling by uh, SWACO, and nano reporters by the Advanced Energy Consortium. We have a lot of other areas. We're working on nano sustainable energy, a lot of hydrogen storage, nano electronics, nano 